Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. This is your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you very much for tuning into this episode to hear about some stories from Texas history. This episode's being released on April the 3rd, 2017, and anytime we're in the time period between October and April, we are smack in the middle of the anniversary of the Texas Revolution. This year it's the 181st anniversary, and we are a mere 18 days away from the anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto. And we all need to remember that it was Texas winning independence from Mexico that led to the entry of Texas into the United States. Not annexation, as we learned in back in Episode 7 of Wise About Texas, but Texas joining the Union. We weren't annexed. We joined by Congressional Resolution. That led to the U.S.-Mexican War, which resulted in the United States expanding into the West all the way to the Pacific. So the U.S. wouldn't be the U.S. without Texas winning its revolution, and Texas wouldn't have won the revolution without the subject of today's episode, a boat. But not just any boat. The steamboat Yellowstone. Author Donald Jackson called her, correctly, the engine of manifest destiny. So let's go back, way back, to 1831 and get wise about Texas. Now, steamboats revolutionized transportation in the United States. As the U.S. was settled, rivers formed one of the fastest and most efficient modes of transportation. If you look along the major rivers of the U.S. uh, from east to west, you'll be tracking U.S. settlement from east to west. And the ports, the most important ports, We're at the mouths of these rivers, and in Texas, that is certainly true. If you look at Galveston, uh, at the mouth of Galveston Bay, which is fed by several rivers, and bayous, which is um, a river as far as Texas is concerned, uh, because so many of them were navigable. Uh, The Anahuac was at the mouth of the Trinity River. Uh, Harrisburg was near the mouth of Buffalo Bayou. Um, the port of Velasco uh, at the mouth of the Brazos River, the port of Quintana also at the mouth of the Brazos River across from Velasco, the port of Matagorda, a very important port at the mouth of the Colorado River. So these major rivers dictated the settlement of Texas just as they had done back in the United States, and they gave rise to these very important port cities. Now, river navigating a river is a little bit different, of course, uh, than navigating other bodies of water. You are dependent on the current. And prior to the invention of the steamboat, dependent on a lot of manpower. If you were going up that river, you were going to row. And so uh, navigating a river was tricky. Uh, But the steam engine, invented in 1769 by a Scotsman named James Watt, changed all that. And men decided they would try to build boats using these steam engines. Steam engines. Now, a guy named John Fitch built a steamboat in 1787, and he sailed it down the Delaware River. Uh, it worked, but it was very expensive to build, and it was very expensive to operate, so it just wasn't practical at that time. In 1807, however, a man named Robert Fulton, who we think of as the father of the steamboat, built a boat he named the Claremont. The Claremont traveled up the Hudson River in New York and covered 40 miles in eight hours, which was absolutely unheard of in 1807. That's five miles an hour and was truly amazing, especially going up the river. 
Now, if you don't think that was amazing, consider that Robert Fulton, with his uh, new steamboat business, carried 100 passengers at a time between Albany, New York, and New York City every four days or so. Now, you're going to have to put yourself back in 1807 and think of being able to make a trip that might take you weeks in just a few days. I mean, that was revolutionary, and Robert Fulton proved that it could be done. Now, it wasn't always smooth. A steam engine, of course, works on the pressure of the steam generated by the burning of the wood, and uh, there was a significant risk of explosion. And, of course, an explosion in an iron steam pressure vessel is catastrophic. And matters uh, were not helped on the, in the steamboat business uh, as far as danger was concerned. Matters were not helped by the fact that steamboat captains had a nasty habit of wanting to race each other and see whose boat was faster. Uh, one of the most famous races was between the Natchez and the Robert E. Lee. They raced from New Orleans to St. Louis. The Robert E. Lee won, by the way. But uh, that definitely increased the danger. There was another problem with steamboat travel up these rivers and down these rivers, and that was snags. Now, snag technically is anything in the water that's going to snag your boat, but uh, typically in these rivers it was timber, and the timber was often under the surface. Uh, The boat snags the timber. The timber punctures the boat. Uh, The boat sinks. That's obviously an issue, and uh, snag boats were invented, steamboats that were specifically designed to clear these snags, to try to clear these rivers. And in typical American fashion, when you have an invention like the steamboat, you have a collateral industry that comes up to make those steamboats work. So snags were were a significant risk. Explosion was a significant risk. But the efficiency gained by the invention of the steamboat was worth every single risk. Well, in 1831, a man in Louisville, Kentucky, named Pierre Chateau, contracted for a sidewheel steamboat to be named the Yellowstone. Now, a sidewheel steamboat is a boat that has the wheel uh, midships on the side as opposed to the stern wheel paddle boats that you may typically think of when you talk about the grand steamboats of the Mississippi, etc., where that had the big wheels in the back because that's, that's the normal one that you see. This wheel was on the side. And the sidewheeler was going to be named the Yellowstone. Now, Chateau was having the boat built for a company called the American Fur Company, owned by John Jacob Astor. Now, Astor has appeared in this podcast before. He was a New Yorker, and uh, he was a big patron of John James Audubon. So go back and listen to the uh, John James Audubon episode, and Astor helped to finance many of his trips, including the one to Texas. Well, Astor owned the American Fur Company, and one of the big businesses in the United States in the early 1800s was the fur trade. But there was a problem. The West was largely unsettled. The Louisiana Purchase was in the, uh, the it was in 1803, as I recall, and the fur uh, industry counted on uh, west uh, places west of the Mississippi and into the Rocky Mountains. That's where all the good fur was, and they needed a way to get up there more efficiently. John Jacob Astor uh, desired to corner the fur market. And so he was having this boat built, and, and one of the goals of the industry at the time was to try to get further up these rivers with boats. Uh, they weren't able to get uh, up the rivers that ran more northwest, such as the Missouri River uh, at the time, with boats, or they didn't think they could. Uh, 
and the boats that they had, uh, the, the risk of Indian attack was significant, and the boats that they had were very vulnerable. And so Astor's idea was to get this steamboat, and they were going to see if they could get up the Missouri River. Well, the Yellowstone was about 130 feet long. It was 20 feet wide, and it had one engine. Now, to make the steam, we need something to burn, and the steamboats burned wood, lots and lots of wood. Now, you measure wood, as everybody listening to this probably knows, by the cord. A cord of wood is, is uh, if you cut four-foot logs, is a stack of wood four feet high and eight feet wide. And when you have a four foot high, or four by four by eight, let's say, that's going to weigh between 3,000 and 6,000 pounds, depending on the wood. That is not a small amount of wood. Well, the Yellowstone was going to burn 10, count them, 10 cords of wood per day. So you can tell that much of that space on that boat was going to be taken up before you put a stick of cargo on there by all that wood. Well, uh, going up the river, I'm going to jump ahead and give you a little tidbit about the Yellowstone. When it went up a river on a trip, what the steamboats would do was to make more room for cargo is they would take on wood as they progressed up the river. So I was reading uh, the Telegraph and Texas Register from December 1836. This is after, of course, after the Battle of San Jacinto, once uh, the Yellowstone had finished um, accomplishing the tasks we're going to talk about in a few minutes and had gone back to commercial shipping, I found an ad in the Houston paper that announced that the Yellowstone was going to start making a run from Quintana, which is at the mouth of the Brazos, up to Washington on the Brazos. And they was uh, the ship's captain was offering $3 per cord for ash or hackberry. So um, that the people would have seen that ad and enterprising folks would have gone into the uh, steamboat wood supply business. Now, I, I hope all of you listeners out there have split wood before because it certainly builds character. I, I personally have retired from such activity. But uh, get out and cut a little wood, and you'll see how much effort it takes to split and stack a quart of wood. So three bucks doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot to me, but back then I suppose it was enough to bring, bring people uh, out of the woods or perhaps have them cut down their woods and sell it to the steamboat. Anyway, here's what the ad said. The ad was advertising um, how much wood that the Yellowstone would require, and uh, as it progressed between Quintana and Washington, and starting up the river at Washington, it would take on 20 cords, so probably at least 6,000, no, sorry, 60,000 pounds of wood at Washington between Washington and Gross's Plantation. Now, we talked about Gross's Plantation in several other episodes. It was the largest, probably largest plantation in Texas in the 1836-37 time period, certainly was, and it was near present-day Hempstead, so which is just a very short distance from Washington on the Brazos. They would take on a hundred cords of wood um, between Washington and Gross's plantation. So I suppose they would just pull over and pick up whatever wood was offered. At or near Gross's, the ad reads, they wanted 50 more cords of wood. Now I, I'm just going to guess how long it would take to load 50 cords of wood on this ship. I mean, it would take most of a day. 
if not more. Uh, from Grosses, they would proceed to San Felipe. Now, San Felipe to Hempstead by road is mere minutes. Uh, by river, in a boat with a motor, who knows? I've never done it, although that's a great idea for a little trip. Um, but they would take another 50 cords of wood at San Felipe, uh, proceeding down the river to Muscogee Bluff, uh, which in 1836 would have been well-known, another 50. Then they came to Richmond. Now, they're going down the river, so they probably don't use as much wood, but they wanted 100 cords at Richmond. Then they advertise at or near Henry Jones's place. They'd want another 100 cords. The next advertisement for a stop is in the neighborhood of Big Creek. They wanted another 50 cords. By then, it said at or near Bolivar. So by then, they would have been out into the Gulf and over to Bolivar uh, for another 100 cords of wood. And uh, at any convenient landing place between Marion and Quintana, they would take on 300 cords of wood. Let me clear something up. I just realized I said something about being in the Gulf to Bolivar. That's not correct. It, this is Bolivar, Texas, in Brazoria County in 1836, not the Bolivar Peninsula. I have had Galveston on my mind the day I'm recording this. So I, I said out in the Gulf. They were not out in the Gulf. They were in on the river. There was a Brazoria, uh, Bolivar, Texas, and Brazoria County in 1836. It originally was a plantation uh, belonging to one of Stephen F. Austin's cousins. Uh, anyway, so they would have taken wood at Bolivar and then Marion, as you may remember from the earlier Capitals of Texas episode, was the, the original name for the town that became East Columbia is now West Columbia. So uh, that is a total of 900-ish cords of wood uh, for that run between Washington on the Brazos and Quintana. I mean, that is just an astounding amount of lumber. Um, but still the most efficient means of transportation at the time. Um, now, uh, no one, we, we talked about them. I just mentioned the Missouri River and the Steamboat Yellowstone. Well, no one had ever gotten into the upper reaches of the Missouri River. So John Jacob Astor's new boat, the Yellowstone, set out from St. Louis on the Missouri River April 16, 1831. It reached Leavenworth on May 1st before it was Fort Leavenworth uh, on May 1st. And the American Fur Company had an outpost called Fort Tecumseh, which is now Fort Pierre, and of course gave rise to the town of Pierre, South Dakota, on June the 19th of 1831. Now, to that point, no boat had ever gone past Council Bluffs. Uh, no steamboat had gone past what they called back then the Council Bluffs. Now, of course, this is the city of Council Bluffs, Iowa. But the Yellowstone had just proven that it could be done, and it really opened up the fur trade for the American Fur Company. It used to take an entire season to bring the furs to market from that high up the Missouri, and now it could be done in a few weeks. So, you can tell that was certainly a revolutionary event. The Yellowstone wasn't done. It actually made it to what's called the Upper Missouri River, uh, all the way to Fort Clark, which is not far from the mouth of the Yellowstone River. Now, nobody thought, would have ever dreamed, that a steamboat could have made it that far, but the Yellowstone proved them wrong. Uh, 
Um, and before we leave the Missouri River, let me tell you about the Yellowstone's last voyage up the river. It went up the Missouri and had an outbreak of cholera on board the ship. The cholera killed the pilot. It killed the engineer. It killed all the firemen. The captain put a young man named Joseph Labarge in charge of the boat while the captain set off on a smaller boat to try to go back to St. Louis and get another crew. Well, local Missouri citizens were panicked over that cholera, as you can understand, and they threatened to set the Yellowstone on fire and burn it. So Labarge had to fire up the engines and quickly move that boat to the Kansas side of the river, which he managed to do. Now, Labarge was pretty tough. He had been a a fur trader and had single-handedly faced down a group of Sioux Indians while his partner took the pack mules and went for help. So he was a tough customer, but he managed to save the Yellowstone uh, from being burned while managing to avoid cholera himself. So that was quite an adventure. Um, oh, one more thing. Let me mention that I found about the Yellowstone. The Yellowstone actually took uh, a German naturalist, Prince Maximilian of Weed. I guess you pronounce it Weed. It's a W-I-E-D. Uh, he took him up the Missouri River with an artist named Carl Bodmer. So there's actually some paintings. I'll find some uh, images, put them on the website of the Yellowstone going up the Missouri River. Um, Prince Maximilian had discovered some tribes in the Amazon exploring Brazil um, and had desired to come to the United States and do some reports on the American Indians, which he did. Uh, so he was rather famous. And that trip that he made brought news of the Indians in America to uh, Europe. So that was a very famous uh, adventure, and the steamboat Yellowstone played a key role. Well, by 1835, the Yellowstone for a steamboat was pretty old. The average life of these ships, of these boats, were five to seven years, and that's because of all the snags in the river damaging the boats and also just the sheer danger of these steam engines and the tendency of, that they had to explode. So it was an old boat, and it was offered for sale in New Orleans. Well, luckily there was someone in New Orleans who needed a bargain on a used steamboat, and that was a man named Thomas Toby. He had a company called Thomas Toby and Brother, but he was actually an agent for two guys from Texas, Samuel May Williams and Thomas McKinney. Now, we've mentioned their names uh, several times before in various contexts. They were some of the earliest merchants and some of the earliest very successful merchants in Texas. And they were in New Orleans uh, trying to get some equipment for the Texas Revolution. So they arranged through Toby to acquire the steamboat Yellowstone. Now, the U.S.-Mexican uh, relations uh, made it important for the United States to remain neutral in the Texas disturbances, as they were referred to. So Toby ostensibly bought the ship, being a U.S. citizen. He registered it in, under a U.S. flag, and they proceeded to essentially rebuild the Yellowstone. The Yellowstone, I think the purchase price of the Yellowstone was about $7,000. The rebuild of the Yellowstone cost $4,000. So it was essentially a rebuild of the ship. Thousands of feet of lumber. There's one invoice that survives to tell us what was done. It's, a, it's an invoice that uh, says they made a $1,500 down payment on a $3,800 bill, and it details uh, just thousands of feet of different types of lumber, uh, but it doesn't go into great detail about how the lumber was used. It's not obvious 
from the document. Um, the documents in the Daughters of the Republic of Texas Library uh, at the Alamo, and uh, it's it's pretty frayed, but uh, it was a major project to refit the Yellowstone. Well, once refitted, it was put into commerce in Texas, and it began making runs up the Brazos River. It arrived in Texas uh, in December 1835, although I did find a reference uh, to its arrival in November 1835, and here's where that discrepancy occurs. We know for sure that among the uh, people on the boat from New Orleans was a group of volunteers from Alabama that called themselves the Mobile Grays, and the Mobile Grays came over to participate in this young Texas Revolution. Now, in October 1835, as you know from listening to this podcast, we had the Battle of Concepcion. The armed conflict was beginning, and volunteers were being sought from the United States. So the Mobile Grays show up, and um, if you read the history of the Mobile Grays, they say they came in November. Uh, The history of the Steamboat Yellowstone talks about arriving in December. Uh, But we do know for sure the Grays were on that boat. So whenever it got here, it got here. And the Grays would end up joining Colonel James Fannin. Most of the Grays died in the Goliad Massacre on March 27, 1836. So when the ship arrived, when the boat arrives in December 1835, the Siege of Behar uh, would have been going on, and it would have arrived on the Brazos, and uh, it began serving the, the state of Texas as a business ship until one day in late March. 1836, when the Yellowstone found itself up the Brazos uh, tied to a landing belonging to Jared Gross, who we just mentioned earlier. Jared Gross was the largest cotton planter in the state. He was the richest man in Texas without question at this time. And his Bernardo Plantation, which I think uh, deserves its own podcast, was uh, the center of travel, commerce, lodging, basically any commercial activity. It would have been well known to everyone in the state of Texas and was a true landmark. Well, Jared Gross had a landing on the Brazos um, from which he shipped his cotton down the river. And so the Yellowstone found itself at Jared Gross's on March 31st, 1836, loading cotton. Well, something else happened on March 31st, 1836, and that was that Sam Houston arrived on the Brazos River opposite of Jared Gross's plantation with the Texas Army moving east from the Colorado River, much to the consternation of his troops, the ones that were left that hadn't got so angry that they weren't fighting, that they walked off. And Houston decided to use that time to train and drill his men. Well, Houston looks over on the river and sees the steamboat Yellowstone. And uh, that was a welcome sight to General Houston because, and there, there is some indication in the record that he thought he could use the Yellowstone to go down the river and attack the Mexican generals that were down uh, near Fort Bend. He knew that they were coming from the south and thought they were at Fort Bend in present-day Richmond, Texas. But whatever, you know, others would think that he um, intended from the beginning to do what he eventually did, which is cross the army and go further east. But whatever his goal, Sam Houston uh, got in contact with the ship captain and pressed the Yellowstone into the service of the Republic of Texas. The captain of the Yellowstone was named uh, John Utah Ross, 
And here's what Sam Houston wrote. I'm going to just read to you what Sam Houston wrote to uh, Captain Ross. Sir, you and each member of your crew and the officers of the boat are hereby assured and guaranteed that they and each of them shall be indemnified as well as the boat owner for wages, losses, and damages in consideration of the impressment of your boat into the public services of Texas, parentheses, the Yellowstone, in case they were confused about what boat they were talking about since there were a grand total of about four, but whatever. Houston continues, and it's a detention for the benefit of the Republic and furthermore for the rendition of services of the hands and the boat until it can be discharged. Each person shall be entitled to one-third league of land and the officers a proportionately larger quantity. You are not required to bear arms. The boat is not to leave without my orders. Close quote. So Houston uh, grabbed a hold of that Yellowstone and knew that it could be a great benefit to the Army. Well, Ross knew that he was going to have to uh, fortify this boat. So what he did was he took the cotton bales from Jared Gross, and he stacked them up in such a way that they covered the engine, and they covered the windows of the pilot house and formed sort of a fort Uh, for the protection of the boat as it went down the river. Now, that sounds a little weird because when we think of cotton, you probably think of the cotton that you buy in the store, and you think of this light, fluffy material. Uh, Maybe you think of a a shirt or a dress you'd wear in the summer. Uh, But a bale of cotton is a different animal. A bale of cotton is, is thickly pressed together, compressed together, weighs about 500 pounds. A bale of cotton would easily stop a musket ball in 1836, and it would also stop grape shot fired out of a cannon. So it was a formidable object to stack around your engine and formed a good barrier. The engines of the steamboat were the vulnerable part. Given the pressures, if you could hit the engine, you'd blow the boat apart and kill everyone. Well, Houston uh, shortly received word that Santa Ana had arrived in San Felipe and was trying to cross the Brazos. Now, we know that Santa Ana wasn't able to do it there, Uh, He had to do it below there, Uh, but Sam Houston immediately decided to cross the army across the Brazos on the Yellowstone, and he wrote a letter to David Burnett, the provisional president of the Republic, and of course, you know, he and Burnett were enemies, Um, and Burnett was really getting agitated that Houston wasn't fighting, but he wrote to Burnett that he was going to cross the Brazos and meet the enemy on the east side of the river, so... Yeah, and that would have made some sense. You could have backed up the Mexican army up against the river. But So he got the Yellowstone fired up, and they crossed all the men, all the equipment, and all the animals across the Brazos. There was a note in the record that they lost two oxen, so you can imagine that was a bit of a sad sight, But um, especially when they had to later commandeer some uh, on the way to San Jacinto. But uh, he went over to Gross's uh, plantation on the east side of the river, uh, where a welcome sight arrived, the twin sisters from the cannon from Cincinnati, Ohio, were received there at Gross's plantation, and uh, he continued to prepare his army. By April 14th, he was ready to continue his move to the east, and he released the Yellowstone. Now, remember I mentioned the Yellowstone flew under an American flag, and so what he what Houston did was he wrote a passport out to Captain Ross, and he the the passport essentially said that 
the crew was required to remain neutral. This was an American crew on an American ship, and that they had, in fact, remained neutral, and that he, Sam Houston, commander-in-chief of the Army, had forced them uh, to cross the Army and cross the equipment, uh, but that they were neutral in the Revolution. So um, you can imagine that Ross insisted on that document in case uh, down the river he would uh, encounter the Mexican generals personally, which he fully expected to do. So what Ross did was get those cotton bales stacked up tight. He fired up the boilers as hot as they would go, and he proceeded down the Brazos River, which, by the way, was swollen from the spring rains, and we know that from the writings of both Houston and Santa Ana. And uh, he proceeded down the Brazos at full speed. Now, um, I live, grew up and live not too terribly far from the Brazos. I've been on the river those of you who have not been on the Brazos, especially when there's a lot of water in it, it is a very swift-moving river. There is a lot of current, uh, and it can be a challenge. And I can imagine in 1836 it was a huge challenge for this large steamboat. So he fired it up and uh, decided to go down the river at full speed. Well, uh, we know now that Santa Ana, they didn't know then, but we know now that Santa Ana had split his army Santa Ana had taken, had crossed the river and had taken off toward Harrisburg. Um, but parts of the Mexican army remained at Fort Bend, and that's the part that eventually got stuck in the mud and could not come to Santa Ana's aid. Uh, so they're at Fort Bend on the Brazos River. Here comes the Yellowstone going as fast as it can go. The Mexican army would have heard it, uh, would have heard the ship's bell, would have heard the engines, would have heard the steam escaping long before they saw the boat. So they were ready. Well, immediately upon rounding the bend, the Mexicans start firing at this ship, but they had nowhere to, they, they didn't know uh, where to shoot. One of the Mexican officers had seen a steamboat, obviously, told them to shoot at the engines. The engines were protected by the cotton bales. So no matter how much they shot, uh, they were not having an effect. They wheeled around an eight pound cannon to start shooting grape shot at this ship. That didn't work. Uh, the cotton bales protected the engine some more. And there's a story that some of the Mexican cavalry actually tried to rope the smokestacks of the boat as it went past them. Now, this is one of those stories that we never know if this is actually true, but it sort of ought to be true. And uh, the Brazos, of course, is very wide as we know it today. At that time, it would have been a lot narrower. Uh, there would have been a, an ample opportunity uh, for that boat to get close enough to the bank. Uh, my big question on this story, if it is true, is what exactly did those cavalrymen think they were going to do if they actually had gotten that rope on that smokestack? Uh, so think about that. It didn't work. Uh, if it did actually happen, it didn't work. Um, what we do know from eyewitness accounts is the Yellowstone was going so fast, bouncing off the banks of the Brazos, that at one point it spun all the way around in a circle as it went down the river. So using a Texas phrase, you can imagine this was quite the rodeo. Uh, but anyway, the Yellowstone got past that part of the Mexican army and made it down to the mouth of the Brazos. Shortly thereafter, April 21st, 1836, San Jacinto occurs. The battle is won. Uh, but as you'll recall from earlier episodes of this podcast, David Burnett and the government was in uh, Galveston, and they were trying to get to New Orleans, but once uh, our good friend Judge Benjamin Cromwell Franklin delivered the news that the Battle of San Jacinto had been won, uh, Burnett and the government needed to go and meet Sam Houston 
back up the San Jacinto River and up Buffalo Bayou and uh, get together on what to do next. Uh, they had found out, of course, that Santa Ana had been captured. Uh, the Yellowstone, in the meantime, uh, had uh, delivered gunpowder to Galveston on April the 19th. So the after its adventure down the river around the middle of April, uh, they had picked up gunpowder and delivered it to uh, the troops or to uh, Galveston, where the government was located. The gunpowder was picked up at Brazoria and delivered. I'm, I'm, uh, I've got a receipt. I got in the state archives and I got the receipt for this delivery that on April 19, 1836, and I can't read it real well, either 10 or 16 kegs of gunpowder had been delivered uh, to Bailey Hardiman, who was a government official at Galveston from Brazoria on the Yellowstone. And uh, the receipt is for the the claim of the $140 shipping charge. But that gu- that gunpowder had arrived on April 19th in Galveston. And you'll recall from the very first episode of this podcast that one of the things that the subjects of that episode, Benjamin Cromwell Franklin, had done was deliver some gunpowder uh, up the San Jacinto River, arriving in, uh, at San Jacinto on April the 20th. So that gunpowder had come across on the Yellowstone. So the Yellowstone was at Galveston uh, when the government needed to get up to San Jacinto. One little problem. There was not a tree to be found on Galveston Island in 1836. And so what they did was spent four days gathering driftwood, and they gathered enough driftwood that the captain thought that they could burn that driftwood and get the Yellowstone up the river. Well, that was successful. And uh, by then, the Sam Houston had moved the army up Buffalo Bayou away from the battleground because you remember they didn't bury any of the dead so that they had to get away from the stench. And uh, the government made it up to Houston's headquarters. And uh, Houston, of course, was there wounded in the ankle. He needed to go back down to Galveston and thence to New Orleans to get medical treatment. They also had the president of Mexico as their prisoner and many other Mexican prisoners. So the Yellowstone turned it around, gathered some more wood, and loaded up for another trip to Galveston. So the Yellowstone took a bunch of Mexican prisoners, Texan soldiers guarding the prisoners. They took General Sam Houston and President Santa Ana, all on the Yellowstone at the same time, and headed back down to Galveston. One of the Mexican officers wrote an account of the trip where he described as they passed the San Jacinto battleground that the Texan soldiers all uh, went to the starboard side of the boat and presented arms and stood at attention as they passed the battleground, and the Mexican officer couldn't understand why that was. Well, of course, uh, I'll tell you why it was, buddy, because we just uh, freed Texas. They made it to Galveston and then proceeded on Uh, to Velasco. Sam Houston uh, went to get treatment in New Orleans and uh, delivered David Burnett, uh, the treaty negotiators, the president of Mexico, Santa Ana, the Mexican prisoners, to Velasco where they would spend uh, several weeks and the treaties of Velasco would be negotiated, which fully and finally freed Texas from Mexico. Well, after that, there was one more important errand Uh, before the Yellowstone left the service of the state of Texas. In December, December 27th, 1836, the father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin, passed away. He passed away in George McKinstry's house 
and he lay in state for two days, at which point his body was placed on the steamboat Yellowstone at Columbia and taken to his home at Peach Point, where he was laid to rest. So the steamboat Yellowstone, that had done such great service to the Republic of Texas, did its final errand for the Republic, delivering the body of the father of Texas to his final resting place at the Peach Point Plantation. The Yellowstone went back into the commercial shipping business and disappeared from the historical record, at least, about 1837. But it played a huge role in the independence of Texas. Uh, The crew, now you remember Sam Houston had promised all this land to the crew of the Yellowstone because he felt uh, that their service had been so important. The crew went on to have a little trouble collecting that, and uh, there are plenty of records, including some in the court records of Harris County, where they're trying to uh, collect on the things that Sam Houston promised them. Captain Ross's widow, uh, Charlotte Ross, had pressed a claim against the state in the 1850s for his pension, etc., uh, but that all got resolved. Out of that, though, came a letter from Sam Houston to the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and he wrote the following. Had it not been for the services of the Yellowstone, the enemy could not have been overtaken until they reached the Sabine. I therefore beg leave most respectfully to solicit the interposition of Congress to redeem the pledge which was made under the most pressing circumstances of our country. To sum up the Yellowstone's role in the Texas Revolution, there's one more quote from Sam Houston written about the time he impressed the Yellowstone into the service of Texas. Quote, A compliance on the part of Captain Ross and his crew enabled me to save Texas, close quote. So that sums up the service of the steamboat Yellowstone to the Republic of Texas. We couldn't have done it without her. Well, now we come to the part of the episode called Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places that I've described in the episode. And I want to start with the Yellowstone. We don't know where she is, Um, but there is a ship's bell in the Daughters of the Republic of Texas Library at the Alamo, and it is said to be from the Steamboat Yellowstone. Next, I want to talk about Washington on the Brazos. Uh, Washington on the Brazos State Park is an absolutely beautiful place, and you know from earlier episodes that's where the Texas Declaration of Independence was signed. There's a replica of the building in which it was signed. There's a great museum there called the Star of Texas Museum. It's got a lot of great artifacts, especially heavy on artifacts reflecting the daily life of Texans back in 1836. It's a fascinating place to visit. And you can walk to the banks of the Brazos and see the place where the steamboat Yellowstone would have tied up. A little bit down the river from there was Gross's Plantation. And one of the easier markers to find is on FM 1887 south of Hempstead, about three miles. And it marks the site of Gross's Ferry, which was a ferry across the Brazos and would have been very near the location where the Yellowstone had tied up uh, before it made its run down the river. Um, Fort Bend, the bend in the Brazos, is right smack in the middle of Richmond, Texas. It's a beautiful spot, so and there's some park land uh, right around there. So go down to Richmond and uh, walk down by the river, and you'll be near the area where the Mexican Army tried to rope a steamboat. And since this podcast is being released in early April, uh, the year is 2017, 
I encourage you to visit the San Jacinto Monument for one of the neatest festivals and battle reenactments around, and that's the reenactment of the San Jacinto Battle. San Jacinto Battle this year it will be on April 22nd. Take some time each spring and visit the San Jacinto Battleground and remember the Texans that came before us and fought for the independence uh, that built a great nation and a great state. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Wise About Texas. I truly appreciate you listening. I hope you'll take a minute and share this show with a friend. Uh, That's a really great way to preserve and promote Texas history, and uh, that gets uh, the show out there. If you have a second, uh, click on your iTunes and leave a review. I'm really grateful for all the reviews we've gotten, and I hope you'll take a minute to do the same. We're on Facebook at Wise About Texas. Like and share the Facebook page. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at WiseAboutTexas. I hope you're enjoying these stories of Texas history. If you think it's worth a buck or two to preserve and promote Texas history, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, Patreon dot com slash WiseAboutTexas, and make a pledge. It costs a little money to do this show, and I appreciate any support that you can throw the show's way. Well, Uh, We're coming up the next episode. I'm planning to do a San Jacinto-related episode, so stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. And until then, go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.